Chapter 3 of The Defiant Agents This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by R.J. Davis The Defiant Agent by Andre Norton Chapter 3 Travis, one knee braced against the red earth, blinked as he parted a screen of tall, rust-brown grass with cautious fingers to look out into a valley where golden mist clouded most of the landscape. His head ached with dull persistence, the pain fostered in some way by his own bewilderment. To study the land ahead was like trying to see through one picture interposed over another and far different one. He knew what ought to be there, but what was before him was very dissimilar. A buff-gray shape flitted through the tall covered grass and Travis tensed. Mba Coyote. Or were these companions of his actual god, spirits who could choose their shape at will and had, oddly, this time assumed the bodies of man's tricky enemy? Were they in Dendai, enemies? or Dalian Bayakai, allies. In this mad world he did not know. Idiki? His mind formed a word he did not speak. Friend. Yellow eyes met his directly. Dimly he had been aware, ever since awakening in this strange wilderness, with the coming of morning light, that the four-footed ones trotted with him as he walked aimlessly, had unbeast-like traits. Not only did they face him eye to eye, but in some ways they appeared able to read his thoughts. He had longed for water to ease the burning in his throat, the ever-present pain in his head, and the creatures had nudged him in another direction, bringing him to a pool where he had mouthed liquid with a strange, sweet, but not unpleasant taste. Now he had given them names, names which had come out of the welter of dreams which shadowed his stumbling journey across this weird country. Niliki Degu, maiden who walks ridges, was a female who continued to shepherd him alone, never venturing too far from his side. Najinta, he who scouts ahead, was a male who did just that, disappearing at long intervals and then returning to face the man and his mate as if conveying some report necessary to their journey. It was Naliki Dayu who sought out Travis now, her red tongue loiling from her mouth as she panted. Not from exertion, he was certain of that. No, she was excited and eager. On the hunt. That was it. A hunt. Travis's own tongue ran across his lips as an impression hit him with feral force. There was meat. Rich, fresh, just ahead. Meat that lived, waiting to be killed. Inside him his own avid hunger aroused, shaking him further out of the crusting dream. His hands went to his waist, but the groping fingers did not find what vague memory told him should be there, a belt heavy with knife and sheath. He examined his own body with attention to find he was adequately covered by breeches of a smooth, dull-brown material 
which blended well with the vegetation about him. He wore a loose shirt, belted in at the narrow waist by a folded strip of cloth, the ends of which fluttered free. On his feet were tall moccasins, the leg pieces extending some distance up his calves, the toes turned up in rounded points. Some of this he found familiar, but these were fragments of memory. Again his mind fitted one picture above another. One thing he did know for sure, he had no weapons. And that realization struck home with a thrust of real and terrible fear, which tore away more of the bewilderment cloaking his mind. Now Nikki was impatient, having advanced a step or two. She now looked back at him over her shoulder, yellow eyes slitted. Her demand on him as instant and real as if she had voiced understandable words, meat was waiting, and she was hungry. Also, she expected Travis to aid in the hunt at once. Though he could not match her fluid grace in moving through the grass, Travis followed her, keeping to cover. He shook his head vigorously, in spite of the stab of pain the motion cost him, and paid more attention to his surroundings. It was apparent that the earth under him, the grass around, the valley of the golden haze, were all real, not part of a dream. Therefore, that other countryside which he kept seeing in a ghostly fashion was a hallucination. Even the air which he drew into his lungs and expelled again had a strange smell, or was it taste? He could not be sure which. He knew that hypno-training could produce queer side effects, but this? Travis paused, staring unseeingly before him at the grass still waving from the coyote's passage. Hypno-training? What was that? Now three pictures fought to focus in his mind. The two landscapes which did not match, and a shadowy third. He shook his head again, his hands to his temples. This? This only was real. The ground, the grass, the valley, the hunger in him, the hunt waiting. He forced himself to concentrate on the immediate present and the portion of the world he could see feel, scent, which lay here and now about him. The grass grew shorter as he proceeded in Nalikidu's wake, but the haze was not thinning. It seemed to hang in patches, and when he ventured through the edge of a patch of it was like creeping through a fog of golden dancing motes with here and there a glittering speck whirling and darting like a living thing. Masked by the stuff, Travis reached a line of brush and sniffed. It was a warm scent, a heavy odor he could not identify, and yet one he associated with a living creature. Flat to earth, he pushed head and shoulders under the low limbs of the brush to look ahead. Here was a space where the fog did not hold, a pocket of earth clear under the morning sun, and grazing there were three animals. Again shock cleared a portion of Travis's bemused brain. They were about the size, he thought, of antelopes, and they had a general resemblance to those beasts in that they had four slender legs, a rounded body, and a head. But they had alien features, so alien as to hold him in open-mouthed amazement. The bodies had bare spots here and there, and patches of creamy fur? Or was it hair which hung in strips, as if the creatures had been partially plucked in a careless fashion? 
The necks were long and moved about in a serpentine motion, as though their spines were as limber as reptiles. On the end of those long and twisting necks were heads which also appeared more suitable to another species. Broad, rather flat, with a singular toad-like look, but furnished with horns set halfway down the nose, horns which began in a single root and then branched into two sharp points. They were unearthly. Again, Travis blinked, brought his hand up to his head as he continued to view the browsers. There were three of them, two larger and with horns, the other a smaller beast with less of a ragged fur and only the beginning button of a protuberance on the nose. It was probably a calf. One of those mental alerts from the coyotes broke his absorption. Nalikidayu was not interested in the odd appearance of the grazing creatures. She was intent upon their usefulness in another way, as a full and satisfying meal, and she was again impatient with him for his dull response. His examination took a more practical turn. An antelope's defense was speed, though it could be tricked into hunting range through his inordinate curiosity. The slender legs of these beasts suggested a like degree of speed, and Travis had no weapons at all. Those nose horns had an ugly look. This thing might be a fighter rather than a runner, but the suggestion which had flashed from coyote to him had taken root. Travis was hungry. He was a hunter. And here was meat on the hoof, queer as it looked. Again he received a message. Nagjinta was on the opposite side of the clearing. If the creatures depended on speed, then Travis believed they would probably outrun not only him, but the coyotes as well, which left cunning and some sort of plan. Travis glanced at the cover where he knew Nalikidayu crouched, and from which had come that flash of agreement. He shivered. These were truly no animals, but Gaian, Gaian of power. As Gaian, he must treat them, accede to their will. Spurred by that, the Apache gave only flicks of attention to the browsers, while at the same time he studied the part of the landscape uncovered by mist. Without weapons or speed, they must conceive a trap. Again, Travis sensed that agreement which was Gaian magic and with it the strong impression urging him to the right. He was making progress with skill he did not even recognize, and which he had never been conscious of learning. The bushes and small, droop-limbed trees, their branches not clothed with leaves from proper twigs, but with a reddish, bristly growth protruding directly from their surfaces, made a partial wall for the pocket-sized meadow. That screen reached a rocky cliff, where the mist curled in a long tongue through a wall twice Travis's height. If the browsers could be maneuvered into taking the path through that cleft, Travis searched about him, and his hands closed upon the oldest weapon of his species, a stone pulled from an earth pocket and balanced neatly in the palm of his hand. It was a long chance, but his best one. The Apache took the first step on a new and fearsome road, these Gaian had put their thoughts or their desires into his mind. Could he so contact them in return? With the stone clutched in his fist, his shoulders back against the wall not too far from the cleft opening, Travis strove to think out clearly and simply 
this poor plan of his. He did not know that he was reaching the way scientists deep space away had hoped he might. Nor did Travis guess that at this point he had already traveled far beyond the expectations of the men who had bred and trained the two mutant coyotes. He only believed that this might be the one way he could obey the wishes of the two spirits he thought far more powerful than any man. So he pictured in his mind the cleft, the running creatures, and the part the Gaian could play if they so willed. Ascent, in its way as loud and clear as if shouted. The man fingered the stone, weighed it. There would probably be just one moment when he could use it to effect, and he must be ready. From this point he could no longer see the small meadow where the grazers were. But Travis knew, as well as if he watched the scene, that the coyotes were creeping in, belly flat to earth, adding a feline stealth and patience to their own cunning. There, Travis's head jerked. The alert had come. The drive was beginning. He tensed, gripping his stone. A yapping bark was answered by a sound he could not describe, a noise which was neither cough nor grunt, but a combination of both. Again a yap-yap. A toad head burst through the screen of brush, the double horn on its nose festooned with a length of grass torn up by the roots. White eyes, milky and seeming to be without pupils, fastened on Travis, but he could not be sure the thing saw him, for it kept on picking up speed as it approached the cleft. Behind it ran the calf, and that guttural cry was bubbling from its broad, flat lips. The long neck of the adult writhed. The frog head swung closer to the ground so that the twin points of the horn were at a slant, aimed now at Travis. He had been right in his guess at their deadliness, but he had only a fleeting chance to recognize that fact as the thing bore down, his whole attitude expressing the firm attention of goring him. He hurled his stone and then flung his body to one side, stumbling and rolling into the brush, where he fought madly to regain his feet expecting at any moment to feel trampling hooves and thrusting horns. There was a crash to his right, and the bushes and grass were wildly shaken. On his hands and knees, the patchy retreated. His head turned to watch behind him. He saw the flit of a triangular flap tail in the mouth of the cliff. The calf had escaped. And now the threshing in the bushes stilled. Was the thing stalking him? He got to his feet for the first time, hearing clearly the continued yapping as if a battle was in progress. Then the second of the adult beast came into view, backing and turning, trying to keep lowered head with menacing double horn always pointed to the coyotes, dancing a teasing, worrying circle about it. One of the coyotes flung up his head, looked up slope and barked. Then as one, both rushed the fighting beast but for the first time from the same side, leaving it a clear path to retreat. It made a rush before which they fled easily, and then it whirled with a speed and grace which did not fit its ungainly, ill-proportioned body, and jumped towards the cliff, the coyotes making no effort to hinder its escape. Travis came out of cover, approaching the brush which had concealed the crash of the other animal. The actions of the coyotes had convinced him that there was no danger now. They would never have allowed the escape of their prey had the first beast not 
been in difficulties. His shot with the stone, the Apache decided as he stood moments later surveying the twitching, crumbled body, must have hit the thing in the head, stunning it. Then the momentum of its charge had carried it full force against the rock to kill it. Blind luck or the power of the Gaian? He pulled back as the coyotes came padding up shoulder to shoulder to inspect the kill. It was truly more theirs than his. Their prey yielded not only food, but a weapon for Travis. Instead of the belt knife he had remembered having, he was now equipped with two. The double horn had been easy to free from the shattered skull, and some careful work with stones had broken off one prong at just the angle he wanted. So now he had a short and a longer tool, defense. At least they were better than the stone with which he had entered the hunt. Nalikidayu pushed past him to lap daintily at the water. Then she sat up on her haunches, watching Travis as he smoothed the horn with a stone. A knife, he said to her, this will be a knife. And he glanced up, measuring the value of the wood represented by trees and bushes. Then a bow. With a bow we shall hunt better. The coyote yawned, her yellow eyes half closed her whole poise one of satisfaction and contentment. A knife, Travis repeated, and a bow. He needed weapons. He had to have them. Why? His hand stopped scraping. Why? The toad-faced double horn had been quick to attack, but Travis could have avoided it, and it had not hunted him first. Why was he ridden by this fear that he must not be unarmed? He dipped his hand into the pool of the spring and lifted the water to cool his sweating face. The coyote moved, turned over in the grass, crushing down the growth into a nest in which she curled up, head on paws. But Travis sat back on his heels, his now idle hands hanging down between his knees, and forced himself to the task of sorting out jumbled memories. This landscape was wrong, totally unlike what it should be but it was real. He had helped kill this alien creature. He had eaten this meat raw. Its horn lay within touch now. All that was real and unchangeable, which meant that the rest of it, that other desert world in which he had wandered with his kind, ridden horses, raiding invading men of another race, that was not real, or else far, far removed from where he now sat. Yet there had been no dividing line between those two worlds. One moment he had been in the desert place, returning from a successful foray against the Mexicans. Mexicans? Travis caught at that identification, tried to use it as a thread to draw closer to the beginning of his mystery. Mexicans. And he was an Apache, one of the Eagle people, one who rode with Cochise. No. Sweat again beaded his face where the water had cooled it. He was not of that past. He was Travis Fox of the very late 20th century, not a nomad of the middle 19th. He was of Team A of the project. The Arizona desert had then this, from one to the other in an instant. He looked about him in rising fear. Wait! 
He had been in the dark when he got out of the desert, lying in a box. Getting out, he had crawled down a passage to reach moonlight, strange moonlight. A box in which he had laid, a passage with smooth metallic walls, and an alien world at the end of it. The coyote's ears twitched. Her head came up. She was staring at the man's drawn face, at his eyes with their core of fear. She whined. Travis caught up the two pieces of horn, thrust them into his sash belt, and got to his feet. Nariki Dayuz sat up, her head cocked a little to one side. As a man turned to seek his own back trail, she padded along in his weight and whined for Najinta. But Travis was more intent now on what he must prove to himself than he was on the actions of the two animals. It was a wandering trail, and now he did not question his skill in being able to follow it so unerringly. The sun was hot. Winged things buzzed from the bushes, small scuttling things fled from him through the tall grass. Only Najinta growled a warning which led them all to a detour, and Travis might not have picked up the proper trace again had not the coyote scout led him to it. Who are you? he asked once and in the guest it would have been better been said. What are you? These were not animals, or rather they were more than the animals he had always known. And one part of him, the part which remembered the desert rancheros where Cochise had ruled, said they were spirits. Yet that other part of him... Travis shook his head, accepting them now for what they were. Welcome company in an alien place. The day wore on close to sunset, and still Travis followed that wandering trail. The need which drove him kept him going through the rough country of hills and ravines. Now the mist lifted above towering walls of mountains very near him, yet not the mountains of his memory. These were dull brown, with a forbidding look, like sun-dried skulls bearing teeth in warning against all comers. With great difficulty, Travis topped a rise. Ahead against the skyline stood both coyotes, and as the man joined them, first one and then the other flung back its head and sounded the sobbing, shattering cry which had been a part of that other life. The Apache looked down. His puzzle was answered in part. The wreckage crumbled on the mountainside was identifiable, a spaceship. Cold fear gripped him and his own head went back, from between his tight lips came a cry as desolate and despairing as the one the animals had voiced. This concludes the reading of Chapter 3.